Chapter 16 of Heart of the West. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Heart of the West by O. Henry. Chapter 16 The Indian Summer of Dry Valley Johnson. Dry Valley Johnson shook the bottle. You have to shake the bottle before using, for sulfur will not dissolve. Then Dry Valley saturated a small sponge with the liquid and rubbed it carefully into the roots of his hair. Besides sulfur, there was sugar of lead in it and tincture of Nux Vomica and Bay Rum. Dry Valley found the recipe in a Sunday newspaper. You must next be told why a strong man came to fall victim to a beauty hint. Dry Valley had been a sheep man. His real name was Hector, but he had been rechristened after his range to distinguish him from Elm Creek Johnson, who ran sheep further down the Frio. Many years of living face to face with sheep on their own terms wearied Dry Valley Johnson. So he sold his ranch for $18,000 and moved to Santa Rosa to live a life of gentlemanly ease. Being a silent and melancholy person of thirty-five, or perhaps thirty-eight, he soon became that cursed and earth-cumbering thing, an elderlyish bachelor with a hobby. Someone gave him his first strawberry to eat, and he was done for. Dry Valley bought a four-room cottage in the village, and a library on strawberry culture. Behind the cottage was a garden of which he made a strawberry patch. In his old gray woolen shirt, his brown duck trousers, and his high-heeled boots, he sprawled all day on a canvas cot under a live oak tree at his back door, studying the history of the seductive Scarlet Berry. The schoolteacher, Miss DeWitt, spoke of him as a fine, presentable man for all his middle age, but the focus of Dry Valley's eyes embraced no women. They were merely beings who flew skirts as a signal for him to lift awkwardly his heavy, round-crowned, broad-brimmed felt Stetson whenever he met them, and then hurry past to get back to his beloved berries. And all this recitative by the chorus is only to bring us to the point where you may be told why Dry Valley shook up the insoluble sulfur in the bottle. So long-drawn and inconsequential a thing is history, the anamorphous shadow of a milestone reaching down the road between us and the setting sun. When his strawberries were beginning to ripen, Dry Valley bought the heaviest buggy whip in the Santa Rosa store. He sat for many hours under the live oak tree, plaiting and weaving in an extension to its lash. When it was done, he could snip a leaf from a bush twenty feet away with the cracker for the bright, predatory eyes of Santa Rosa youth were watching the ripening berries, and Dry Valley was arming himself against their expected raids. No greater care had he taken of his tender lambs during his ranching days than he did of his cherished fruit, warding it from the hungry wolves that whistled and howled and shot their marbles and peered through the fence that surrounded his property. In the house next to Dry Valley's lived a widow with a pack of children that gave the husbandman frequent anxious misgivings. In the woman there was a strain of the Spanish. She had wedded one of the name of O'Brien. Dry Valley was a connoisseur in cross strains, and he foresaw trouble in the offspring of this union. 
Between the two homesteads ran a crazy picket fence, overgrown with morning glory and wild gourd vines. Often he could see little heads with mops of black hair and flashing dark eyes, dodging in and out between the pickets, keeping tabs on the reddening berries. Late one afternoon, Dry Valley went to the post office. When he came back, like Mother Hubbard, he found the deuce to pay. The descendants of Iberian bandits and Hibernian cattle raiders had swooped down upon his strawberry patch. To the outraged vision of Dry Valley, there seemed to be a sheep corral full of them. Perhaps they numbered five or six. Between the rows of green plants, they were stooped, hopping about like toads, gobbling silently and voraciously his finest fruit. Dry Valley slipped into the house, got his whip, and charged the marauders. The lash curled about the legs of the nearest, a greedy ten-year-old, before they knew they were discovered. His screech gave warning, and the flock scampered for the fence like a drove of havelis flushed in the chaparral. Dry Valley's whip drew a toll of two more elfin shrieks before they dived through the vine-clad fence and disappeared. Dry Valley, less fleet, followed them nearly to the pickets. Checking his useless pursuit, he rounded a bush, dropped his whip, and stood, voiceless, motionless, the capacity of his powers consumed by the act of breathing and preserving the perpendicular. Behind the bush stood Panchita O'Brien, scorning to fly. She was nineteen, the oldest of the raiders. Her night-black hair was gathered back in a wild mass and tied with a scarlet ribbon. She stood with reluctant feet, yet nearer to the brook than to the river, for childhood had environed and detained her. She looked at Dry Valley Johnson for a moment with magnificent insolence, and before his eyes slowly crunched a luscious berry between her white teeth. Then she turned and walked slowly to the fence with a swaying, conscious motion, such as a duchess might make use of in leading a promenade. There she turned once again and grilled Dry Valley Johnson once more in the dark flame of her audacious eyes, laughed a trifle schoolgirlishly, and twisted herself with pantherish quickness between the pickets to the O'Brien side of the wild gourd vine. Dry Valley picked up his whip and went into his house. He stumbled as he went up the two wooden steps. The old Mexican woman who cooked his meals and swept his house called him to supper as he went through the rooms. Dry Valley went on, stumbled down the front steps, out the gate, and down the road into a mesquite thicket at the edge of town. He sat down in the grass and laboriously plucked the spines from a prickly pear one by one. This was his attitude of thought, acquired in the days when his problems were only those of wind and wool and water. A thing had happened to the man, a thing that, if you are eligible, you must pray may pass you by. He had become enveloped in the Indian summer of the soul. Dry Valley had had no youth. Even his childhood had been one of dignity and seriousness. At six he had viewed the frivolous gambols of the lambs on his father's ranch with silent disapproval. His life as a young man had been wasted. The divine fires and impulses, the glorious exaltations and despairs, the glow and enchantment of youth had passed above his head. Never a thrill of Romeo had he known. He was but a melancholy Jaques of the forest, with a ruder philosophy, lacking the bittersweet flavor of experience that tempered the veteran years of the rugged ranger of Arden. 
And now in his sere and yellow leaf, one scornful look from the eyes of Panchita O'Brien had flooded the autumnal landscape with a tardy and delusive summer heat. But a sheepman is a hardy animal. Dry Valley Johnson had weathered too many northers to turn his back on a late summer, spiritual or real. Old? He would show them. By the next mail went an order to San Antonio for an outfit of the latest clothes, colors and styles and prices no object. The next day went the recipe for the hair restorer clipped from a newspaper, for Dry Valley's sunburned auburn hair was beginning to turn silvery above his ears. Dry Valley kept indoors closely for a week, except for frequent sallies after youthful strawberry snatchers. Then, a few days later, he suddenly emerged, brilliantly radiant in the hectic glow of his belated midsummer madness. A jaybird blue tennis suit covered him outwardly, almost as far as his wrists and ankles. His shirt was oxblood, his collar winged and tall, his necktie a floating oriflamme, his shoes of venomous bright tan, pointed and shaped on penitential lasts. A little flat straw hat with a striped band desecrated his weather-beaten head. Lemon-colored kid gloves protected his oak-tough hands from the benignant May sunshine. This sad and optic-smiting creature teetered out of its den, smiling foolishly and smoothing its gloves for men and angels to see. To such a pass had Dry Valley Johnson been brought by Cupid, who always shoots game that is out of season with an arrow from the quiver of Malmus. Reconstructing mythology, he had risen, a prismatic macaw, from the ashes of the gray-brown phoenix that had folded its tired wings to roost under the trees of Santa Rosa. Dry Valley paused in the street to allow Santa Rosans within sight of him to be stunned, and then deliberately and slowly, as his shoes required, entered Miss O'Brien's gate. Not until the eleven months' drought did Santa Rosa cease talking about Dry Valley Johnson's courtship of Panchita O'Brien. It was an unclassifiable procedure, something like a combination of cakewalking, deaf-and-dumb oratory, postage-stamp flirtation, and parlor charades. It lasted two weeks and then came to a sudden end. Of course, Mrs. O'Brien favored the match as soon as Dry Valley's intentions were disclosed. Being the mother of a woman child, and therefore a charter member of the ancient order of the Rat Trap, she joyfully decked out Panchita for the sacrifice. The girl was temporarily dazzled by having her dresses lengthened and her hair piled up on her head, and came near forgetting that she was only a slice of cheese. It was nice, too, to have as good a match as Mr. Johnson paying you attentions, and to see the other girls fluttering the curtains at their windows to see you go by with him. Dry Valley bought a buggy with yellow wheels and a fine trotter in San Antonio. Every day he drove out with Panchita. He was never seen to speak with her when they were walking or driving. The consciousness of his clothes kept his mind busy. The knowledge that he could say nothing of interest kept him dumb. The feeling that Panchita was there kept him happy. He took her to parties and dances, and to church. He tried. Oh, no man ever tried so hard to be young as Dry Valley did. He could not dance, but he invented a smile which he wore on these joyous occasions, a smile that in him was as great a concession to mirth and gaiety as turning handsprings would be in another. He began to seek the company of the young men in the town, even of the boys.
they accepted him as a decided damper, for his attempts at sportiveness were so forced that they might as well have essayed their games in a cathedral. Neither he nor any other could estimate what progress he had made with Panchita. The end came suddenly in one day, as often disappears the false afterglow before a November sky and wind. Dry Valley was to call for the girl one afternoon at six for a walk. An afternoon walk in Santa Rosa was a feature of social life that called for the pink of one's wardrobe. So Dry Valley began gorgeously to array himself, and so early that he finished early, and went over to the O'Brien cottage. As he neared the porch on the crooked walk from the gate, he heard sounds of revelry within. He stopped and looked through the honeysuckle vines in the open door. Panchita was amusing her younger brothers and sisters. She wore a man's clothes, no doubt those of the late Mr. O'Brien. On her head was the smallest brother's straw hat, decorated with an ink-striped paper band. On her hands were flapping yellow cloth gloves, roughly cut out and sewn for the masquerade. The same material covered her shoes, giving them the semblance of tan leather. High collar and flowing necktie were not omitted. Panchita was an actress. Dry Valley saw his affectedly youthful gait. His limp where the right shoe hurt him, his forced smile, his awkward simulation of a gallant air, all reproduced with startling fidelity. For the first time, a mirror had been held up to him. The corroboration of one of the youngsters calling, Mama, come and see Pancha do like Mr. Johnson, was not needed. As softly as the caricatured tans would permit, Dry Valley tiptoed back to the gate and home again. Twenty minutes after the time appointed for the walk, Panchita tripped demurely out of her gate in a thin, trim white lawn and sailor hat. She strolled up the sidewalk and slowed her steps at Dry Valley's gate, her manner expressing wonder at his unusual delinquency. Then out of his door and down the walk strode, not the polychromatic victim of a lost summertime, but the sheep man, rehabilitated. He wore his old gray woolen shirt, open at the throat, his brown duck trousers stuffed into his run-over boots, and his white felt sombrero on the back of his head. Twenty years or fifty he might look, Dry Valley cared not. His light blue eyes met Panchita's dark ones with a cold flash in them. He came as far as the gate. He pointed with his long arm to her house. Go home, said Dry Valley. Go home to your mother. I wonder lightning don't strike a fool like me. Go home and play in the sand. What business have you got cavorting around with grown men? I reckon I was locoed to be making a he-pole parrot out of myself for a kid like you. Go home. And don't let me see you no more. Why I done it, will somebody tell me? Go home and let me try and forget it. Panchita obeyed and walked slowly toward her home, saying nothing. For some distance she kept her head turned and her large eyes fixed intrepidly upon dry valleys. At her gate she stood for a moment, looking back at him, then ran suddenly and swiftly into the house. Old Antonia was building a fire in the kitchen stove. Dry Valley stopped at the door and laughed harshly. I'm a pretty-looking old rhinoceros to be getting stuck on a kid, ain't I, Tonia? said he. 
Not very good thing, agreed Antonia, sagely. For too much old man to like muchacha. You bet it ain't, said Dry Valley grimly. It's dumb foolishness, and besides, it hurts. He brought at one armful the regalia of his aberration, the blue tennis suit, shoes, hat, gloves, and all, and threw them in a pile at Antonia's feet. Give them to your old man, said he, to hunt antelope in. Just as the first star presided palely over the twilight, Dry Valley got his biggest strawberry book and sat on the back steps to catch the last of the reading light. He thought he saw the figure of someone in his strawberry patch. He laid aside the book, got his whip, and hurried forth to see. It was Panchita. She had slipped through the picket fence and was halfway across the patch. She stopped when she saw him and looked at him without wavering. A sudden rage, a humiliating flush of unreasoning wrath came over Dry Valley. For this child he had made himself a motley to the view. He had tried to bribe time to turn backward for himself. He had been made a fool of. At last he had seen his folly. There was a gulf between him and youth over which he could not build a bridge even with yellow gloves to protect his hands. And the sight of his torment coming to pester him with her elfin pranks, coming to plunder his strawberry vines like a mischievous schoolboy, roused all his anger. I told you to keep away from here, said Dry Valley. Go back to your home. Panchita moved slowly toward him. Dry Valley cracked his whip. Go back home, said Dry Valley savagely, and play theatricals some more. You'd make a fine man. You've made a fine one of me. She came a step nearer, silent, and with that strange, defiant, steady shine in her eyes that had always puzzled him. Now it stirred his wrath. His whiplash whistled through the air. He saw a red streak suddenly come out through her white dress above her knee where it had struck. Without flinching, and with the same unchanging dark glow in her eyes, Panchita came steadily toward him through the strawberry vines. Dry Valley's trembling hand released his whip handle. When within a yard of him, Panchita stretched out her arms. God, kid, stammered Dry Valley. Do you mean... But the seasons are versatile, and it may have been springtime after all, instead of Indian summer, that struck Dry Valley Johnson. End of chapter 16